You're listening to Conversations with Shanta, a podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shanta Smith-Baker. This conversation is sponsored by KP Companies, matching top talent with leading companies for over 20 years. KP Companies is an executive search firm specializing in finding top-tier talent across various industries and skill sets through their exceptional talent match process, making them your source for finding key people. Get in touch with KP Companies at kpcompanies.com. In this episode, Shonda engages in a discussion with the extraordinary Takima Robinson, a mother, social justice strategist, philanthropist, and the CEO and founder of Converge, a national social justice consulting firm. Together, they explore the intersection of personal identity and social justice work, as well as the story of A.J. Owens, a courageous mother of four who bravely stood up against a white woman who terrorized the entire neighborhood and was allowed to do so, then eventually took A.J.'s life on June 2023. This conversation is so profound, we are splitting it into two parts. Here's part one of our two-part series with Takima Robinson. Enjoy the show. Hello, Takima. Hi, my friend. <laughs> I know I'm so happy to see you and to be in this conversation. Thank you for joining Conversations with Shonda. You know, we're going to do like we do. We're going to just have a conversation about the work and just talk about it in, in the way that we do, which is, is real. It's in touch with community and it's in touch with systems and how we, we navigate that. I think is important because there are a lot of people navigating a lot of things right now and competing priorities and how we show up in the work, I think are are important uh, stories for us to share out. So I really appreciate you taking the opportunity to to be with me. Absolutely. I mean, I may just, I might need this conversation (laughs) for myself and for my own practice because it's always good to have um, I always enjoy talking to you. I always feel like you help me process as well. So I'm looking forward to this time together. Sounds good. So for those that are listening and don't know you, who are you? Who am I? Who are you? <laughs> uh, so uh, Takima Robinson Llewellyn. I'm, uh, I am definitely a mom. I'm a wife. Um, I'm also the founder and the CEO of Converge Consulting. We are a social justice consulting firm. Our work was birthed in the South post-Katrina. And I've worked in philanthropy and social justice for my entire career, so about 20-something years. It's the work that I was born to do. It's my family legacy. It's the work I would do if I wasn't paid. Um, And I am also a yogi (laughs) and um, a lover of sunsets and beautiful things. And I'm a girl's girl. And um, yeah, I'm I'm a lot of different things. um, And I'm excited to talk a lot about how, you know, all those things show up for me in the work. I, I love a lot of what you're saying, right? Many of us learned how to be in community through our families and our neighbors. Yes. Right? Like I get asked all the time, how did you make a decision? I didn't have a decision to make. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
right? I didn't have a decision to make. My family was like, life is not about you, sis. Like what you need to do is give to your neighbor. What you need to do is make sure that everybody around you is well. What's required, right? What is required? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that's, that's the same for me. It doesn't feel like a career choice. It just feels like being who I am and who I was born to be. I know one of the the questions that I often get is how do you show up in your full self, right? The way that you described yourself um, is who you are as a whole person. Exactly. And there are many people in the work that feel like this is who I am at work. This is who I am at home. This is who I am on vacation. This is who I am with my kids. Can you just talk about the importance of integrating all of those things? Yeah, that's exactly the word that was coming to mind is integration. And I I think I've actually found it as a source of power, you know, particularly, you know, you and I know each other through a very particular set of relationships that overlap around being a Black woman senior leader in philanthropy at tables where the deals are going down that impact our community, right? And so working and living in those spaces and understanding what my assignment is at those tables, it has been a journey of me leaning into that multifaceted aspect of myself to understand that is actually the source of the power that I bring to everything that I do and particularly this work and this assignment of doing social justice work. And so the integration has been a journey because I think there's not a lot of things that tell Black women as leaders to show up as their full selves, right? Like that's not in the job descriptions and show up as your full self and bring your family with you and bring your community with you and bring what you know about living this life as a Black person in America fully with you into these jobs are often taught to play the game or to play the politic or to operate inside an environment that wasn't necessarily, um, is not prepared for our full selves, but it's actually our full selves that are required to transform not only those spaces, but also to do the transformative work that we're assigned to do. So integration's a journey. And it's also one that I would say is supported by having friends and colleagues like you, right? Like to be able to see myself and another sister along the journey um, as we're figuring out what integration looks like has been a big, big part of, you know, my ability to access that as part part of my tool set and my power in my centering. How much courage is required? All of it. <laughs> more than you even know you got all of it all of it all of it because you know i go back to a quote constantly by tony k bambara in the opening of salt eaters and it's something i've carried with me and it's one of those things that just keeps teaching you know it's an opening quote where there's a woman who is a social justice activist and she is sitting in a mental institution in her community the very same organization that she helped create. She finds herself sitting in that institution because she has lost her mind doing this work. Mm -hmm. And the question is, do you want to be well? 
Do you want to be well and do you want to be healed? And the lesson is that the healers must heal themselves first. And the healing of ourselves is the showing up as our full selves. That's what, and, and again, and then, and then there is the idea that when we do that, we allow others, we show, we give other people permission, we give people an example of what that looks like. And so how much courage? It takes all of it, all of it. When you first entered formal philanthropy, who did you have to be to survive in that space? I had to be acceptable. Mm, that's, that a, that's a word I don't like. <laughs> when it's true, it's crunchy, but that's what happens. We learn to be acceptable. We, we go out, we go shopping for the right clothes. You know, we're trying to figure out, you know, what the lay of the land is, you know, where the landmines are, who's friendly. And so we often go into that space very armored, very guarded. You know, philanthropy is a very odd space, as you know, this idea that like, that there are resources <laughs> that people get to decide to do with on behalf of other people who aren't even in the conversation about how this is going to impact their life. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, when I first entered the field, I was just trying to understand what this thing was. I knew, you know, I was there in assignment. I knew there were resources on the table and I knew I wanted to see them impact the communities I cared about differently. And I was trying to figure out who I needed to be, to be able to do that work. And again, I think I was initially trying to figure out how to be acceptable in that environment so that I could work that system until I realized that system was fundamentally broken, not only philanthropy at large, but the institutions themselves were fundamentally broken. Um, and there was a big, big disconnect between the vision statements and these mission statements and these strategic plans and these other things. And what was what I knew as a black person, as someone not not distant to community, but of community, rooting community, family going through all the issues that we're discussing. Um, I knew that there was a disconnect. So you know, I've worked through that to get to where I am, and I'm excited about having more colleagues um, who have been on this journey and are doing such amazing, transformative work in these institutions and in this work at large, but have gotten there through a process of integration and standing in our power and understanding we know what we know about our communities because they are our communities and they are our families. And this work is about us. There is an advantage to having that lived experience and that knowing that you just expressed. On the better days, it lends itself to really great strategy. Mm -hmm. On the not good days, particularly where there is a crisis facing community, the proximity has a level of weight that others don't burden because of their lack of proximity. Yeah. On the days that were heavy, which I know that we've had many, um, do you have advice on how to carry that when you have the lived experience of the work that you're holding? Yeah, and I'll I'll even say a little bit more and share a little bit more about, you know, 
a very recent experience, um, very public experience that, you know, I'm bearing, you know, in June, my sister's best friend was murdered by a white woman who um, assaulted her children and then murdered her in front of them. And the proximity to that has come with a lot of grief, my own grief, my family's grief, the grief of children, the grief of um, everyone who loved AJ and the proximity to that um, is heavy. It's very, very heavy. And I know you've carried, you know, this burden through many, um, many tragedies that you have been close to as well. I think I try to remember in in the hardest moments of it that I'm human. Um, I also try to remember that I'm chosen. Mm. I try to remember that grief is a part of life. Um, it's definitely a part of Black life. And as I get older and I get more seasoned, you know, this is what we saw our aunties <laughs> and our mamas and the church mothers and the other women of the community have always held space for the grief of our communities and of our, of our families. And so I'm learning in this like season how to hold that better in a way that doesn't doesn't drown me and, and in a way that can still be strategic and thoughtful, um, but can also still be integrated and authentic. So, you know, it, 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 uh, it comes with anger. <laughs> it comes with a lot of righteous anger. It comes with a lot of frustration about how incredibly broken our systems are. And I mean, systems, societal systems, criminal justice system, education system, and the failures of these things. Um, it comes with a lot of community drama and the trauma, the trauma of our communities and the residual drama, the not the residual, yeah, the residual drama that, that reverberates after these events. It comes with that and learning how to manage that. Um, so it's it's uh it's a heavy burden to bear. And you know, it's been um it's not been an easy and not been an easy time for myself or for my family. Um, but I I do feel like as I am actively in this situation, um, I do believe and I have to believe, and I believe it's what you know, Black women leaders throughout history have always held on to is we we do this work because our communities have to survive. Our families need to survive, you know? And so, yeah, I don't have, I don't have clear, clear answers about how, you know, to hold this. I'm just growing through it. I'm learning through it. I'm leaning into it and I'm trying to process it into purpose trying to process it into purpose. Working in community, I have often told folks that were on my team when community was loud about something <laughs> that they didn't like, that 
our role at, at the fundamental level is working in pain, working people in community through pain and trauma, right? That, that um, that's where we go. We go where the pain where it hurts most pronounced. And so if you understand that the action is coming from fear, from pain, from distrust and all of those things, you can depersonalize it. And if you understand that that's part of the role, then you wouldn't, you're not as thrown off. Yeah. The difference is that there's these inflection points that are really clear that grief is occurring, like with a murder. Yes. But the pain is still there. After that season of intensity leaves, the the consequences of that happening over and over and over again, the consequences of the system not serving over and over and over again, culminates into the actions that we see. Absolutely. And so there is a skill set of going into that space and creating calm and understanding and taking from it what is necessary, extracting the best of what that pain looks like and moving it into solutions. Yeah. And I mean, I just think about the generations of Black folks who have had to do that, who have had to serve in grief. You know, um, yeah, and I, I actually think when, you know, when you're talking about it, many of us need to be trained in trauma and in bereavement in this work, because it is often, like you said, we're going to the places that hurt. We're trying to figure out how to alleviate the pain and the suffering in our communities. Um, and something you just said about being able to go into those situations and to bring calm, you have to be calm. You have to bring calm into your inner self to be able to sort of lead in that way. And that is a double, you know, they talk about double consciousness. That's, yeah. that's a double, that's a, you know, a, a, a sort of a double assignment, you know, to be able to kind of find that in yourself, to be able to then bring that in your full self into community to then create that in community and in space with people to get them to be able to move forward inside of the unending grief, right? Because our communities are constantly under, you know, assault. You know, unending grief and toxic stress, right? Absolutely. Toxic stress every day. Yeah. It's part of the calm for you knowing that you're living in purpose. You're, you're living in assignment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's the grounding, you know, and it's the grounding. And so why it's why I believe it's so important that we all tap into that and bring that into the work with us. It's the anchor, right? It's the source of courage. It's the source of clarity. It's the source of calm. You know, because how do you make sense out of George Floyd? How do you make sense out of Aubrey, out of Brianna out of AJ. How do our communities process racial violence that is acute, but also the level of racial violence that is in poverty and in these failed systems, right? That create the toxic environments that people are just trying to live a life in. It's tough. Let's talk about AJ. 
Yeah, I miss her. Yeah. Who was she? Who is she? AJ was a bright, bright, bright light who would always tell family that the world would know her name. And I find a lot of purpose in the work that I'm doing with her family and in her memory and for her children and on behalf of her mom, that the world will know AJ's name and know her as a, an amazing mother, as a great friend, as a bright light. And even on the night her life was taken, she was being a protective mom, a mom of her four, but also a mom of that community who stood up against a woman, a white woman who terrorized the entire neighborhood um, and it was allowed to do so um, and then eventually took AJ's life. And so she's not, AJ is not just a murder victim of racial violence. Um, AJ is a light and a legacy and AJ lives on in her four beautiful children. And AJ, I believe, is going to be, and I'm going to say it out loud, I believe AJ is going to be one of the reasons we bring down Stand Your Ground in this country. If you can, the woman who took her life, Mm -hmm. what did her racial terror look like? Yeah, so, you know, it's really interesting. She's my sister's best friend and actually inherited my sister's apartment. Right. Like this is what we're talking about. You and I talk about proximity. (laughs) We're talking about proximity. So AJ inherited my sister's apartment. And shortly after my sister left that neighborhood, this white woman, Susan Lorenz, moved in. And outside of her apartment is a field. So it's like a play space, a green kind of grassy area. Um, And everyone in this neighborhood is a renter's. Um, And the property manager has allowed the children to use that as their hide and seek and tag and play space. And this is where all this is where the basketball hoop was. And, you know, and so this um, is sort of the 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 layout of the the scene of of sort of what occurs. Um, And this woman moves into this neighborhood and begins terrorizing these kids. She begins calling the names, calling them the N-word. She begins having all of these very inappropriate conversations. She refers to this grassy area as the Underground Railroad, the children as slaves. This goes on, Shonda, for years. There are over, I believe, um, last time I checked, we were over 30 phone calls to the police, whether it was her calling the police on the children for being children or, um, and not just AJ's children, all the children in the neighborhood, um, or those families having to call asking for police to intervene. Even in their interventions, the police recognize that these children are being children um, over and over again. Um, But unlike how I assume a black person would be treated (laughs) if the police had been called this many times into a neighborhood and into a situation, she was allowed to continue to terrorize. In her arrest after David, she talks about AJ very specifically. She talks about the gun she bought for AJ. She talks about in her um, search history um, on Google, she searched, 
before this happened, within the weeks leading up to it, stay in your ground defense. So we have public policy. We got public policy now on the table. We got public policy now being used to premeditate murder and weaponize racial violence against Black people. In a neighborhood and in a community that keeps crying for help to the local authorities, asking for support and intervention because this white woman is terrorizing. But the response is, she's just a crazy lady, ignore her. But the community is living under this terror every single day. And on the particular night that this occurred, the children were playing in this grassy area. AJ's second oldest, Izzy, left his iPad and his rollerblades outside. He went out to retrieve them after everyone had come in. Streetlight, come on, everybody had come inside. He goes outside to retrieve those things. And Susan comes out with his iPad, breaks it, and hits him with rollerblades and tells him to go get his mama. His mama comes across the street, knocks on her door, and the next thing she is, she knows she's met with a bullet to the chest through a locked metal door. With her son standing next to her. So now we have a child, a, a mother who is dead, a child who is in extreme trauma, trauma, right? In an entire community that has been terrorized and traumatized for years leading up to this fateful night. I don't even know what to ask because of what I'm feeling. But what I will ask is, how long did it take for the police to come? Did they at least arrest her immediately? No, they did not, Shonda. They did not arrest her immediately. Um, she was questioned that night, and so were other folks in the community. She was allowed to sleep in her bed. The next day, she came outside, had a cup of coffee on her front porch in front of the entire neighborhood. She bagged up and put the candles and the teddy bears that were set up on the grassy area that she does not own. She threw those things away. And she, she threw them out. away. Did you say she, she threw them, them away? Them? She threw them away. She threw them away. And she put them in a trash can in front of the entire community. And the next day, she went back in her house and she slept again. And it took three days. Um, and in those three days, I, I, I had gotten the phone call from my community. I activated many of the sisters in our underground railroad network of <laughs> don't, don't mess with us. Don't, don't mess with us. <laughs> the army is 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 coming, right? Here, the, here, the, here, the, here, here and here by Monday at uh what time? What time Joy come on? By Monday, when Joy Reed, our good yeah. sister, had to break the news nationally. That's what it took to get her arrested. And so for four days, she slept in her own bed. And for four days, she had coffee on her porch in front of this community. And for four days, she removed the little vigil that they set up in AJ's memory. And so this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the audacity of racial violence. The level of this in this case is... is um, 
is beyond Shonda. And, you know, when I talk about why I believe, you know, what, what the purpose that I'm finding in it, the purpose that I'm, 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 I need to find to do what I need to do and I need to sort of hold in the light is that AJ told us the world would know her name. And I, the, the premonitions, the premonitions that happen, right? And, and not only that, but I think we ought to be really, really clear that racial violence does not always end with loss of life. Exactly. It was violent before her life was taken. It was violent to live in a community where you cry for help and the people who are supposed to help make light of the situation because they don't live in these bodies. They don't understand the consequence of allowing this and the escalation and the history that goes along with white women who have weaponized, right? Who have weaponized their quote unquote fragility who have weaponized the systems because all I could think about was Emmett Till. Yeah. And what I'm thinking about now is in this conversation, one is where we started, which is sometimes in my centering, I think about what our ancestors generations ago had to go through when they were on those fields and being stripped from land and having their families and the level of trauma and abuse and leadership that they had to show and courage through conditions that I'm not even sure I could survive, right? So I'm thinking about the legacy of violence in our community. And I'm also thinking about when my 18-year-old and his friends went to play basketball in a nearby suburb and the police were called on them because they didn't belong there. And the squads that rolled up on them. And mm-hmm. coincidentally, I knew someone who was visiting their sister that knew my son that came out when the police came. Right. And my response was, don't go there no more. Right. Right. Because as a mother, I'm just trying to protect where I see obvious areas of problems are but the reality is it's a through line in my spirit every day every day because they can show up anywhere and I can show up anywhere where my presence could be offensive to someone right or your children or my children or your children yeah I mean I think we have to talk about the reality sometimes especially in philanthropy and social justice we are having we, we have these abstract strategic theoretical, right, conversations. And there are moments like this that re-anchor us to what this is really about on an every single day basis. Racial violence, to your point, doesn't always end up in the loss of life. Racial violence is poverty in our communities because this same neighborhood I'm talking about, on any given day, you're going to drive through in the middle of the day and see at least 10 adults sitting on the porch, not working, 
might may see some kids who are not in school. So we're also talking about poverty. Um, we're talking about policy. We're talking about systemic failure. You know, we're talking about survival. We're talking about survival. Talking about survival and suffering. Right. And suffering in ways that are often difficult to articulate, but the reality lives in our bodies and our actions. Yep. Right. Um, so Susan went to jail. Yes. Where are we at now with the we trial are, coming up? Yeah, we have a trial coming up. Um, we are awaiting that. The trial is, um, last we were notified, uh, dated for mid-November. We have a state attorney who has decided to file only manslaughter charges. So let's add another dimension to racial violence. Um, a Republican elected state attorney and 80% Republican county, um, same county in which Trump did several rallies, Ocala, Marion County, Florida, Central Florida. He lands his plane on a private plane strip that is owned by very wealthy people. This is the same county that is home to the villages. I don't know if people know that massive <laughs> uh, retirement community. Um, again, an 80% Republican county. So we have that as a dimension. Um, we were only able to get a manslaughter charge out of the state attorney. It's all he is willing um, to, to charge her with and to move forward with, which is devastating, honestly, um, because a manslaughter charge suggests this could this was accidental, right? When we have evidence that not only was she be weaponizing um, the police over time with these phone calls and these filings of complaints about AJ and the children in the neighborhood, she purchased a gun at a certain point, which she said she purchased for AJ. She has a search history of looking and studying, stand your ground as a policy and defenses as a policy, and we get a manslaughter charge. So that's part of this. We are also, um, so we have a trial ahead of us. Um, we are uh, lovingly being supported by Ben Crump and um, our attorney, Anthony Thomas. Anthony was one of Ben's um, leads on Trayvon Martin. Um, and so we are also in the process of looking at going straight up to the Department of Justice to really look at civil rights um, charges in this case and excited that we have seen the DOJ move in both yeah. Brianna's case and in Aubrey's case and are hoping that there are now, you know, more folks with some courage there um, that are interested in using the tools of the federal government in these instances of racial violence. And so it can't be positioned as a hate crime. It can be positioned absolutely as a hate crime. And we are framing it um, as such um, and are continuing to appeal and will continue to appeal to the state attorney in Florida, 
around the murder trial um, to see it through the way that we've seen it. And so we're also working with some amazing, some amazing film directors to sort of put together kind of a mini documentary, um, really framing it from our point of view as a you know, a long history of racial terror and racial violence that ends in the um, in AJ's life being taken, but also the injustice of how the Florida justice system um, is prosecuting this case. Yeah. Let's talk about the justice system, because um, often in our advocacy in community. We have the police. At the center. Yeah, of the conversation, we don't think about um, the roles that uh, 911 has in terms of framing and vetting. We don't talk about people that are calling 911 and and, um, making things up. Yes. We don't talk about attorney generals, judges, and others, part of the judicial process. Um, in terms of their role in serving justice equally into our communities? Yeah, what I'm witnessing, what we're absolutely witnessing is then not only do you have the injustice of AJ's life being lost and all the folks who did not intervene because no one saw the racial, what Susan was doing as racial terror and racial violence. No one took the black lives and the brown lives in that community seriously and saw this woman as a threat. So we have that. Then we have the next layer layer of injustice, which is how political the judiciary process is. So you have, and I forgot to mention it, Shonda, this county is also the birthplace of Stand Your Ground. The policymaker who drafted the legislation is from this county. So you have, so we understand that's in the political system, right? This is ground zero. And unbeknownst to me, Shonda, Marion County, Central Florida is murder capital of the state. This happened in the beginning of June. So let's also add another layer of public policy. 30 days before Ron DeSantis's policies to allow no licensed open carry even took effect. So now we have tons of guns. Now we have heightened racial tension. Right. And then that means we also have a a, a political uh, environment that is clearly anti-Black and pro-gun, right? And we have a community suffering at the hands of a racist terrorist and their lives, their cries for help and intervention are not taken seriously. And that leads us to what happens on June 8th and all the injustice that is now occurring after that. What I'm also clear about and preparing for is how these children will be portrayed in this trial by the state prosecutor and how they've already been portrayed 
or how Asian as a Black mother will be portrayed. Let's talk about those layers of injustice that you have to bear when the person who is supposed to bring you justice mm-hmm. is the bearer of the injustice. Right. So Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Child, um, or the exactly. way in which we try to frame Black victims as violent offenders and unworthy to be living. Absolutely. In a way that becomes believable. Absolutely. For people that are observing from a distance. A reinforcement of biases and stereotypes that reduces the level of trauma that they were navigating or that they experienced at the end of their lives. And I'll tell you this, um, you know, I've had the privilege of of spending some time with Trayvon's mother over these past couple of months. And I've gotten, you know, we've gotten calls from, you know, many of the families of people who have been, you know, whose names we we call, um, who have been impacted by this. And, and, And they're the ones who show me what I need to do, which is to find some purpose in this. So I just want to, you know, not, this wasn't a club I wanted to be a part of. Um, but in that club, you know, Sabrina, Trayvon's mom and others are the ones who are showing us that it's finding purpose in their loss, which is why I said, AJ said the world's going to know her name and that is our responsibility. And it will be in her name that this policy that created this environment in which this woman felt like she could weaponize this law and take her life it will be in the name of that that the world will know AJ. I've had the opportunity uh, a couple of times, but most recently to be with Oscar Grant's mother. The the quiet strength and resilience that she carries. Her son, Oscar Grant, was was killed. It was filmed on the BART station. Um, The movie Fruitville Station um, sort of depicts that. But what's amazing is after that, she worked with the police there to have a mural of her baby on that same BART station where he was murdered. And um, what is amazing was her ability to understand both what happened to her son should not have happened, that there's a legacy to his life that needs to be understood, and that there's a responsibility. She held the responsibility of how do I help make the system better? And so as we were going through Derek Chauvin's trial, right. And Dante Wright was murdered in a very similar circumstance that was expressed of aiming for the, the um, taser instead of a weapon. She was called upon and came here to provide comfort. Right. So to have to to have to lose a child, to have to lose a child that way, and then to have to grieve out loud, and then to be part of a club that helps other mothers going through the same thing. I mean, how much can people bear? We're still in the days and the weeks. <laughs> um, we're still in the days and the weeks, and I I I would be. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not say Pam's name, AJ's mother's name out loud here in this space, because I have never seen the level of resilience and the level of strength 
you know, I, you know, there were, there was a conversation, you know, are we going, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to fight? Are we going to go quietly? Because, you know, there comes a point where you have to choose peace or justice. That's right. Because justice ain't peaceful. Join us for part two, where the conversation continues. In part two, they'll delve further into their experiences, including their interactions with Ben Crump and the critical need for support for families impacted by police and racial violence. This is Conversations with Shonda.